This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today on the show, we have the immensely talented Sally Bedell Smith, a legend in royal reporting who has previously written books on Queen Elizabeth II, King Charles, and Princess Diana, just to name a few. Sally was a contributing editor at Vanity Fair for over 20 years, and before that was a reporter at the New York Times and Time. Among numerous other accolades and appointments, she is also an on-air contributor for CNN. It is an honor to have you here today. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Rachel. It's good to be here. Well, you have written about the Kennedys, the Clintons, and other prominent figures, but so much of your work centers around the British royal family. So how did you begin reporting on the family, and why are they so compelling to you? Well, I began slightly, uh, not quite accidentally, but it was in 1997 after Diana died. And my husband and I are, are I guess, have been longtime monarchy fans, uh, ardent Anglophiles, and... Um, Two days after Diana died, I got a call from a friend of mine who was uh, who was at Random House, and he said, um, we would love for you to write a biography of Diana, because he knew that I'd met her once, he knew that I'd met Prince Charles, he knew that I knew people who knew them, and he said, he asked me, and I said, well, I don't know, um, but I just need to get over there. So I, I flew over there the following Friday and just started reporting like mad. And mm-hmm. um, and I turned in the manuscript in 18 months, which was um, which was warp speed for me. Wow. Yeah. Because my pre my previous two books had taken five years each. So wow. anyway, yeah. it came out in 1999. And um, I mean, it was fascinating. It was a fa- I mean, there were so many things I didn't know about her and how, you know, I mean, the subtitle is Diane I mean the title is Diane in search of herself portrait of a troubled princess and what I didn't realize is the extent of her troubles and that some of them had to do with many of them had to do with her marriage to uh, Prince Charles but a lot of them predated that and uh, so that came out in 1999 it did really well I was very pleased with it and I thought, well, I'll go on and do other things. And so I did, you know, as you mentioned earlier, I did a biography, a dual biography of Jack and Jackie Kennedy in the White House years and Bill and Hillary Clinton in their White House years. And then I was having lunch with the head of Random House, and this was in 2008. And she said, well, why don't you write a book about the Queen? And I thought, oh my, why didn't I think of that? It was mm-hmm. such a good idea. And I said, oh, by the way, in four years, she's celebrating her uh, Diamond Jubilee. 
And um, so I went over to England and I spent about off and on about four, four months, five months there interviewing everybody I knew who um, knew her family, friends, um, and um, that came out in 2012 and was well-received. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. That's a legendary book about, yeah, well, thank you. you're being modest, but yes. <laughs> well, it, um, I, and I think, although, I mean, I did sign a copy for her and one of her cousins conveyed it to her. She really never comments on things like that, but I think it went down well. And so I decided, well, I'll do her heir. And that led me to do a biography of Prince Charles that came out in 2017. And that also was well-received and um, got a lot of notice, as did the Queen. And, uh, and again, I think it went, you know, and neither of these books, I would say, would be Hagiography, they're always, you know, these are human beings, they have flaws, but they also have very many positives. And um, and so that was, you know, that wasn't the, the end for me because after I finished writing about the queen and her heir, now the king, I thought, well, I think I want to do the origin story because I had been interested in her mother and father for quite a long time. And so I wanted to get to the, to the roots of the modern royal family. And, um, and so what, I, what, what emerged is to a degree that I hadn't realized before, because everybody thinks when they think of George VI, they think of the queen of the king's speech, which mm -hmm. was, Pretty It was really quite an accurate portrayal of the struggle he had to overcome his stutter when he became king, the stutter he had had since he was eight years old. And the queen, um, because she lived 50 more years after the premature death of her husband in 1952, everybody, everybody's impression of her is as the jolly queen mom. Right. And so I thought people really don't know the story of who they were, their 28-year marriage, his 15-year reign after his older brother abdicated, and the six years in World War II where they emerged as really extraordinary leaders for Britain who were admired around the world. So the kind of summary of the book that I set out to write and did write is first of all, a love story, but it's also a chronicle of bravery, of leadership, especially during the war. And it's a real look at the dynamics within the royal family and the unique training of the future Queen Elizabeth II. I thought I knew all about that from having written about her, but I learned so much more. And it really spans the early to the mid 20th century. And here is the, the key component of the book, which is that I knew that in order to portray the two of them in an intimate and a really authentic way, 
I had to see their papers. So when I began my research, I got in touch with two people who knew the queen very well, with whom I had good relations and who, um, who respected my work. And they really um, went to bat for me with the queen. And in the spring of 2018, she gave me special permission to, uh, to read the papers of her mother and father and other members of the family and friends that are in the Royal Archives at Windsor Castle. And I spent three months in the, in the Royal Archives. Mm-hmm. It's an easy thing to do in some ways because you have to climb up 100 medieval stone steps every day to I get know, there. I know, I read that. That sounds like a task. <laughs> and how you took your lunch. You, so you didn't and then there were one more, there were 21 more steps wow. <laughs> up to so the, you up took to the your lunch with you. So you didn't have to do it twice in a day. I mean, a- absolutely. Yeah. But it was a totally riveting experience. I have to say, um, I've been in archives before I worked in archives for this book, for others, for other books, but it just made me feel that I was really by their sides. Um, through the good and the bad, through the joy and the sorrow. Um, and I, and there were just, there were surprises on every page, which is when you're a biographer is kind of heaven, heaven sent. Well, yeah. I want to jump right into this book. We've got a few questions for you that I'm really excited to hear about. And you write about King George VI and Elizabeth, that it was a loving marriage that saved the monarchy during World War II. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how exactly it saved the monarchy? Well, and it goes back. It goes back first of all to the abdication in 1936 of King Edward VIII of um, you know um, George VI's older brother, who was, among other things, a really really bad king. I mean, he did he did so many things wrong in the 11 months that he was king. But obviously the main reason for the abdication was that he was determined to marry uh, Wallace Simpson, Mrs. Simpson, mm-hmm. who had been divorced not once, but twice. And under the rules and regulations, both in church and state at the time, that was simply not permitted. When he abdicated, you know, it just cast the monarchy in a very poor light. Um, and Bertie, as um, uh, as George VI was known throughout his life, there was a, the day or one of the days before the abdication, he said to somebody who worked in the palace, um, I know that I'm, I'm going to have to work really hard because it, you know, the, the monarchy is in real disrepair. And I'm just going to have to devote myself to doing that, um, which is what the two of them did. And, and they, they, they were, you know, they were really welcomed by the British people. And really, uh, for the few, you know, for the few years they had of peace before World War II, uh, they they really, you know, they stepped up to embrace their roles. They stepped up in World War II to greatness, but 
before that, they became uh, fabulous diplomats for uh, Britain. They had a hugely successful state visit to France in 1938, and then in 1939, in only three months before the outbreak of war, they went to Canada and the United States. And uh, they only spent four days in the United States, but mm -hmm. it had a huge impact on Anglo-American relations, and it really solidified a bond with um, FDR. And then when war broke out, particularly when the Blitz began in the um, late summer, early autumn of 1940, they uh, showed incredible bravery. They were out many days, particularly in the poorest sections of London and then all over the country, yes, looking at the devastation, comforting the victims, um, Queen Elizabeth even scoured through all of the uh, royal storerooms and she pulled together 60 suites of furniture that she sent to homeless shelters. Uh, they were deeply involved and they showed how much they cared about the people. And they also inspired them with their leadership and their bravery. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and it, you know, it was just astonishing to me, particularly since Buckingham Palace was bombed nine times. And yeah. the second time they were there, they were there for, I think, three out of the nine. But for the second time, they didn't have, it was happening so fast, they couldn't get to the bomb shelter. And, and they were nearly killed. Mm -hmm. um, and the people that they had you know, who were, who were being devastated by bombing in South London and East London, you know, the really deprived neighborhoods, they had a real bond with the king and queen because they knew that even they were vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Well, so you, I want to back up for just a second to oh. their courtship and their falling in love. So you write mm -hmm. of Bertie and Elizabeth's falling in love, that it was less of a courtship and more of a campaign. I like that. So we've discussed on the show before that Bertie proposed to Elizabeth three times before right. she accepted. What right. was it about her that made him so insistent and what coaxed her to finally agree and say yes, because she was a little bit reticent to have such a public life in the royal family. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that is a correct assessment. I mean, he fell in love with her when he saw her dancing um, at, a, at a Royal Air Force ball in the Ritz Hotel in July of 1920. And she was a, I mean, she wasn't beautiful, but she was pretty, she was vivacious, she was funny. Um, she just had an enchanting personality and he, he was, he just fell head over heels. Um, she was you know, sort of the bell of the ball. She had a lot of men who were proposing to her and she was turning them down. And, and you know, she came from a, a very lively Scottish aristocratic family. There were nine children. She had a very maternal mother uh, Cecilia and her father was quite eccentric um, and there's some very funny things in the book about him but 
Bertie saw something in her that he, you know, and he couldn't get her out of his mind. And mm -hmm. then when he went to visit her up at their castle in Scotland, he fell in love with her entire family, um, which was so different from his own very um, formal upbringing within the royal family. So he pursued her for 30 months, two and a half, practically two and a half years, and proposed to her for the first time um, in early 2020. Excuse me, he proposed to her for the first time in early 1921. And she said, oh, I want to keep you as my friend. And the fascinating thing to me was that she never shut the door. Um, there was mm -hmm. something about him that really appealed to her. She admired him. She could see that he had qualities of character that were very appealing to her. Um, and then he proposed, there was, a, there was an X factor also that accounted for her reluctance, at least in the beginning. And that was that she, when she met the then Duke of York, Bertie, Mm -hmm. She was already in, in love with James Stewart. Yeah, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And they had been seeing each other for about almost a year. And he was really close friends with her brothers. Um, Bertie wasn't quite aware of that, at least at the beginning. But um, by the end of 1921, and there's no proof but it's certainly, there's some good circumstantial evidence that Queen Mary, his mother, who took a very keen interest in his, in getting him married to the right woman, and he, mm -hmm. she had decided that Elizabeth Bowes-Lyon was the right woman. And so a very close friend of hers offered a lucrative job to James Stewart in America and said he had to leave right away. Now, James Stewart was the second son of the Earl of Moray, and he needed to make some money. So he went. And that cleared the field for Bertie. And a month later, he proposed to Elizabeth for the second time. And once again, she turned him down. I mean, it really sort of took a village. There were a lot of people who were working behind the scenes to try and make this work. Mm -hmm. um, Queen Mary's best friend, the Countess of Airely, um, Bertie's um, private secretary, uh, Louis Grigg. And Bertie almost gave up in the summer of 1921. And uh, Louis introduced him to a new member of parliament. And they were put together on a ship doing um, an engagement in France. So they had a lot of time to spend together. And this man had been recently married and he had been turned down repeatedly before he finally prevailed. And this and Louis Grigg knew that this story would have an impression on Bertie and it did. And he went back to Glom's castle that autumn and and they just they spent more time together. It's not it's not entirely clear, but the tone of their letters shifted mm -hmm. and there was more tenderness and you, you could tell that they that they made a slight 
romantic pivot um, from being sort of very correct. Um, he decided that he would propose for the third time. And that happened on January 3rd, 1923. And what really fascinated me when I was reading about all this in the Royal Archives is that Elizabeth began her first adult diary on January 1st, 1923. And you could sense that she knew her life was about to change. And um, he did propose to her on the third. And what was really remarkable, and it's all in the diary, and it was it was just fascinating to me. She took 12 days to give him an answer. And we see her running all over London, going out to the country, going to balls, having her picture taken for Vogue magazine, buying clothes mm -hmm. with her friends, and talking, talking, talking to everybody. I counted up the number of hours that she had that she had in discussions with with Bertie and with other friends. It was like 20 hours over the course of that week. Mm. And the she finally, she said she would finally give him an answer on, um, on the weekend ending this 12 day period. And it went all the way up to right before midnight. Um, and, and she finally said yes. Mm -hmm. And her mother wrote to one of Elizabeth's sisters and said, I don't know what happened, you know, but suddenly they're both filled with happiness. He said, she said she was so sort of miserable and undecided. And then it's as if a switch flipped and she was, she was totally committed to him. Um, and, when I asked, he was always very, very hazy about it. When people asked her later, she said, well, you know, it went on for a little while. And when it went, for, it went on for a few years. And then, my, and then one of my brothers said, you're really not being very fair. You should let him know one way or the other. And then when I talked to one of her, one of her nieces later, you know, much, much later, she said, and others have echoed this, that what was really holding her back was she came from, you know, she came from this sort of all-embracing family. She had a wonderful circle of friends. Mm -hmm. And she knew from, from being sort of cl relatively close up to the royal family, she knew what she was going to be in for. She knew that she would devote herself to a life of duty and humble duty and service. And, and she just was really uncertain about whether she wanted to make the commitment. But once she made the commitment, she was all in. Right. We know that when they got married, they really didn't have any idea that they would one day be king and queen, but they did go on to have two children, of course, Elizabeth and Margaret, and you actually write that Elizabeth was King George V's favorite grandchild, and he really didn't want anything to come between her and the throne, and he had actually hoped that his eldest, David, would never marry or have children so it could create a path for her. Um, 
He also commented that he thought David would ruin himself within 12 months on the throne. And then sure enough, we see that he abdicated the throne to Mary Wallace Simpson within 12 months, which allowed Bertie to be King George VI and ultimately um, create a path for Elizabeth one day to make it to the throne. So you actually quote in the book that someone said um, the abdication was a stroke of luck. Would you agree with that, given what we know in the backstory? Yes, I would com- completely agree. I mean, the, the, what what I've what I learned again, a lot of it reading through the papers, is that um, even though superficially, Bertie's older brother, they called him David in the family, even though he was a charmer and he went out and he traveled the world on behalf of the king, and he. he you know, made these very sort of showy tours around the UK, often flying in one of several airplanes that he bought. But David did not have the right stuff to be king. I mean, he even told Bertie and Elizabeth in 1929 that he thought that um, David would never be king. Mm-hmm. And there's some evidence that when when David fell in love with Wallace, that he was seriously thinking about giving up his position as heir to the throne and marrying her. And then George V died. Um, But there's a moment that somebody told me about that happened only weeks before the death of George V in January of 1936. It was over the Christmas holidays at Sandringham, their Norfolk estate, when one of their guests walked into the hallway and there was the then um, Prince of Wales standing on the staircase and George V uh, standing at the bottom, shouting at the top of his lungs, you've got to get rid of that woman. <laughs> and so he felt very strongly about it. And he also told... Um, his wife, Queen Mary, that if David ever did marry her, that neither she nor Elizabeth um, should ever receive her. And Queen Mary made that promise and they never did. At least, you know, if they had, you know, there was one moment or two when they were, when they were sort of thrown together with her. Um, I have a quick question to that point, actually. Yeah, yeah. Did did King George VI and Elizabeth ever have any relationship with Wallace Simpson? Did they ever know her? Did they ever receive her? They met her um, before they before they knew that they, they weren't supposed to. Um, right. There was a moment when um, the, the uh, Prince of Wales, David, not only was he in love with Wallace, he was in love with all things American. And he had brought an American um, station wagon over to Bertie and Elizabeth's house near Windsor, Royal Lodge, where Prince Andrew now lives. And he wanted to show it off. It was kind of an awkward um, moment. Uh, They looked at the car and they walked around the garden and they had tea. And And in her memoir, many years later, Wallace said, well, I had the feeling that the Duchess of York didn't mind about the American car, but she really didn't care for the other American 
which was herself. Um, mm -hmm. And then they were invited to dinner a few times when um, David became king. And one of them was in at, at his home before he was going to move to Buckingham Palace. And then another one was up at Balmoral in, um, in September of 1936. And it was a sort of infamous, um, the King Edward VIII brought Wallace with him and a whole group of uh, British aristocrats. And as one of them wrote, to, wrote a letter to somebody whose collection I read, she said, he brought all of the gold plate up to to um, Balmoral, so Wallace could eat off the gold plate from Buckingham Palace mm. with all these aristocrats, and it had never been done before. And um, so Bertie and Elizabeth were sitting over there in their house at Burke Hall, where well there was this rather, you know, um, well they weren't luge because a lot of them were aristocrats, but this other crowd over at Balmoral and um and 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 David and Wallace did a number of things to offend Bertie and Elizabeth and offend the Scottish people and so um these encounters were not exactly warm and um certainly neither of them was eager to see her again and um and they didn't he, no, neither of them did, because during the abdication, she fled to uh, France. Mm -hmm. We have talked a lot about, you know, some of the personal sides of the, the family in this interview, but I do want to ask you, um, can you tell us a little bit about how King George VI was like as king and how Elizabeth was as queen? Well, they were a really exceptionally close um, partnership. And one of the things that I learned from reading his diary that he began on the first day of World War II, and he continued for all, more than seven years, is how much he grew as a leader and how much he knew and how many insights he had. I mean, people, I mean, the queen, to a certain extent, surprised people in the same way. But he was so well-informed. And he had a lot of wisdom. And he, you know, he really knew what he was doing. You can feel in his diaries this sort of growing sense of confidence in his abilities as a leader. He still had trouble making speeches, and he still relied on Lionel Logue, his his um, speech therapist, to um, help him uh, manage the, his stutter when he spoke. And even in those circumstances, he did it he did it remarkably well. And but getting back to their partnership on um, the day, it was September 10th, 1940, when um, they came to London to, uh, to work for the day, to go out and visit people who'd been bombed. Uh, they, the night, early in the morning that day, um, a bomb, a time-release bomb had exploded 
um, right under the king's office. And it had destroyed the swimming pool that they had built for Elizabeth and Margaret a year earlier. It was a mess. And yeah. they 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 were, you know, they surveyed the wreckage with Winston Churchill. And on that day was the first day that the three of them had a very private lunch that took uh, the place of the formal audiences. And this is when over these lunches where no servants were present, no witnesses, and they served themselves from a buffet. And this is where the king and his prime minister as of May, 1940, um, or throughout the whole war, that is when they would meet and have their confidential audiences. Well, I discovered that Elizabeth was present at many of these, which was highly unusual. Queen mm. Mary would never have done anything like that with George V. Queen Alexandra would never have done anything like that with Edward VII. And it showed, first of all, how tight their partnership was mm -hmm. and how much they confided in each other and how much Winston Churchill trusted her to keep the, you know, to be discreet. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, the couple's 100-year wedding anniversary is coming up in a few weeks, actually. It's on yes. April 26th, 100 years of marriage. Are they one of the great love stories of the British royal family? I really believe they are. I mean, first of all, they had such an unusual courtship. But after that, there was such an evident degree of mutual devotion and respect um, and admiration. And every time, you know, they went out to, you know, when they went to France and they went to, they went to France, by the way, in 1938, right after the queen's mother had died. So it was a very emotional moment for her. And, you know, these, these kinds of challenges brought them even closer together. Mm -hmm. um, they were not apart very often, but the letters that I read when they were apart were so affectionate and tender and even a little bit passionate, which mm -hmm. you sort of wouldn't have expected. Um, but they they were a real love story. And she meant they meant to the world to each other, and their daughters did too. Mm -hmm. um, the, the king called their family us four. Mm -hmm. They were unusual in how involved they were with their daughters. A lot of aristocrats and other members of the royal family remained relatively aloof, but they were, you know, in particular, this was a this was an offshoot of of Elizabeth's own upbringing. Cecilia Strathmore was a very involved mother. 
and she you know taught all kinds of axioms to her daughter if if you're bored it's not the fault is in you and uh, work work is the rent you pay for life and mm -hmm. these things uh, she elizabeth passed on to her own daughter um so they were a a um really remarkable love story all the way to the end mm. and the letters that and then by then the queen mother wrote to queen mary about how she felt you know she just said i am so lucky that we had so much happiness together there's a photograph that i found that i'd never seen before that is the last one in the um in the inserts in the book mm -hmm. of her in a carriage in full mourning with a veil um, that I have goosebumps right now talking about it. Yeah. Um, but the expression on her face, this was, this was at when he was, she was driving to his funeral at Windsor Castle in February, 1952 in St. George's Chapel where where she is buried and where Elizabeth the late queen is buried mm -hmm. but it is it's a it's a heartbreaking picture I'm looking at it, it right just, now and it is jarring it is it is so moving I mean it sort of makes me get a little misty every time I look at it but you can see and there's so many other images of them and they had by the way, they had a lot of fun together, even during the war. I think they gave four balls at not huge ones at Windsor Castle. Uh, they watched over 40 movies uh, in Windsor Castle during the war, and they got away a surprising amount. They went up to Sandringham. They went up to Balmoral for weeks at a time. So, I mean, this, this sort of conventional wisdom about their life in Windsor Castle is that they were, you know, these poor girls were sort of shut up in the tower for, for, for the six years of the war. And obviously when they were there and the bombs were falling, they were going into the bomb shelter. But they also, um, they had a surprising amount of fun. And before, um, when they were Duke and Duchess of York, before Elizabeth and Margaret were born, they were, you know, they were out partying at Mayfair nightclubs until two, three, four, five in the morning. You could <laughs> see a lot of that in their in her diary. Mm -hmm. uh, they went to Africa yeah. in uh, 1924, 25. And that was riveting for me because they both kept diaries. And they, you know, it's not, they were, it would not be politically correct for them to do today what they did then, but that's the way people were back I, then. They shot elephants, they shot rhinos. Um, and But beyond what they were doing in that regard, it's such a portrait of their ability to really deal with physical challenges. I mean, they had to drink muddy water they went for days without taking a bath they sometimes would walk for 20 miles a day um, they sort of learned about themselves and Bertie was in pretty dangerous situations a few times um, when he had to deal with charging elephants um, but there's some lovely descriptions both in letters and diaries of 
um, you know, had their impressions of what it was like in Kenya and Uganda, um, where they spent most of their time. And uh, she wrote to, uh, Elizabeth wrote to one of her sisters, she said, it, it, parts of it are like a large Scotland. Um, and she yeah. had some wonderful ways of describing the elephants and the giraffes. And she she was a very good letter writer. And she was she was very imaginative in the way she described things. Well, you shared so many great stories from this book with us today. Listeners, George VI and Elizabeth The Marriage That Saved the Monarchy is out now. Thank you so much for being here today. This was a great conversation. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome, Rachel and Jessica. I really enjoyed it. As you can tell, I love telling stories about them and all of them are in the book. We love it. And yes, all of these, it's a a big book. It's almost 600 pages. So listeners, pick up a copy. It is out now. Thank you again. 